Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, a nationally board certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risely Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community, but at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about. Relationship, which quite frankly, was very important to avoid burnout, which is I think one of the big problems that's happening in medicine today is is that doctors are not given the opportunity even to get close with patients and develop a relationship. A quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the Reclaim Your Rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice. Please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet, insulin dosages, or healthcare plan. Okay, listen, I loved this conversation with today's guest. So who is Alan Sussman? He is a board-certified endocrinologist in private practice for 34 years, as well as a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington. He was involved in hundreds of evidence-based studies and the development of groundbreaking technology for the treatment of diabetes throughout his career, yet that is not what he's coming on the show today to talk about with us. The thing that will bring the most value to you in this episode, if you listen, is Dr. Sussman's perspective on watching the doctor-patient relationship erode and his belief that science and energy and consciousness are all part of health and well-being. Like he is a doctor who has seen and met with the Dalai Lama three times. Like that is, that is very rare. And it is so refreshing to hear him talk about how open-mindedness and compassion and loving kindness are integral to the practice of medicine and how blood sugar data overload has really distracted physicians from the essence of medical practice, which should be connecting with patients. Dr. Sussman is the author of Saving the Art of Medicine, which I actually just bought on Amazon after recording this episode, so you can go and find it there if you want to as well. And he's just an overall role model for what we all would like to see in every clinician. So without further ado, help me welcome my guest, Dr. Alan Sussman, to the show, and let's rise. Dr. Sussman, thank you so much for making some space and time for this podcast um, interview today. I'm really looking forward to being here with you. Lauren, I'm just as excited about being here and exploring medicine and the art of medicine. Absolutely. We were just talking off air a little bit and you were saying that you're you know, still trying to figure out who that target audience is for this new book that you have out, which I, you know, we'll talk about a little bit later. And I was like raising my hand, like me, I am your target audience. And there are so many people who are going to, you know, who listen to this show, who are also going to definitely get the book and be really interested in what you have to say. I was, you know, diving deep in for like two hours last night on your background and anything I could possibly find. And I'm like, I feel just so honored that I get to spend this time with you today and, and just ask you, you know, so many questions. So I would love for, you know, us to start off with understanding for context, your background and how you ended up here today. And I think for a lot of people that starts, you know, in childhood and those, you know, early years, what were the early personal experiences that really shaped your interest in a holistic view of medicine and healing? Well, it, it becomes even broader than just medicine. It started at, at a, at, during high school where I was very interested in the mind and became a 
Freudian. Mm. And Freud is science, ultimately. He had some interesting theories on how, and how, how things should be looked at, but it was science. On the other hand, my other favorite author was D.H. Lawrence. And D.H. Lawrence is not like Freud. In fact, a little known fact is that D.H. Lawrence wrote a book about psychoanalysis and Freud. And he was rather vituberative. He was he had a lot of negative things to say about Freud because he said you had to what Freud did not do, he did not go from the gut, from where where people where people really are, but more from their head. And I've always, I've always kept that in mind, that interactions and understanding can be, uh, can be in part from science and understanding objectively what's going on, but ultimately what's most important is from the gut and what you're feeling. Did you, I mean, high school that you're reading those books, that's, that's pretty, pretty young to be delving into that material. Did you know that you wanted to be a doctor and therefore that interest in those subjects came as a result of that? And a, this is my path. I want to, you know, read more about this and just prep my mind. Or was it the other way around? Yeah, I was science, science, science. I was good at science. I, I, I understood what was going on and being discussed mathematically, scientifically. And it, and I just gradually always kept in the back of my mind that there was something more than science. Eventually, uh, as what happens in a lot of us in our life, there's a turning point that happens. Uh, sometimes it could be gradual. Sometimes it can be sudden. For me, it was I had a very significant injury to my hand where I cut eight tendons in my right hand and I was a tennis player and a piano player. And it turned out that ultimately, even after three surgeries and a year and a half, neither one of those was going to really be, I would be able to perform at the level I wanted to. While, while I, after I first had the injury, someone said, you want to join this men's group? And in the past, they had asked me, I said, no, no, I'm too busy. I can't do this. But then I suddenly had more time. So I did that. They were doing a book by Robert Bly, and there was meditations in it. And I ended up, uh, uh, and the odd thing was, they were reading the book and not meditating. And I said, this doesn't seem right. It seems like we should be meditating. Hmm. So I took it upon myself not knowing one one part of a mantra from another of of getting involved in meditation work and it started slow and i went to different conferences retreats over a long period of time particularly medically oriented uh retreats and i realized that was very important to me and then i found a uh, a very good friend of mine and his wife joel and michelle levy who do a lot of meditation work even around the world, and they've helped help me along the path of understanding how important meditation is. And then I incorporated that into my life and my practice. Hmm. And so what I'm curious, what your what did your family think of this? Like let's put like think about this. You're in the 1960s, right? Like mid-1960s, probably if you're you know in high school, getting going to college. What was the general consensus from your friends, your family, about your interest in, in practice and meditation? 
I was crazy. <laughs> that's that's what I was like looking for. I was like, it, what, 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 what was going on there? You were crazy, okay? Yes. Yeah. No. No. I. I was not. Uh, it was not understood. Which, in my personality, the less I'm, I'm, I'm understood, maybe the more important it is for mm-hmm. me to try to understand uh, for myself and try to make other people understand. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a motivating part with it. But, but I wasn't being uh, supported. Wow. I mean, the reason I say that is because my my dad, I remember being, you know, young and in, in like middle school and even younger than that in, you know, like the late 1990s, um, early 2000s. And my friends would come over and I would be like, mom, dad's doing that weird thing in the backyard where he's just sitting in the grass with his eyes closed, like tell him to go inside or go in the basement or something. And even just from then to now, the progression of the acceptance of, you know, Eastern practices and mindfulness and meditation, you know, has grown so much. So I can't even imagine, you know, back in and when you were growing up, um, that was the case. So what did you find specifically for you in the practice of meditation? Like what did, what did it give you that you weren't able to get anywhere else that made you be really enthralled with it? Well, uh, part of it, was just a very internal sense of myself of, of, of calm. And it's one of those situations where, you know, you're in the right place and you want to stay there. Mm-hmm. So some of it is hard to explain. Um, but in terms of practice, what it did, it led to more sense of, uh, of me being aware of my intentions, more focused with that and being more attentive to what, to my intentions and more importantly with other people. Mm. And then eventually what became important is compassion. A lot of Buddhist principles. Yes. Very much so. I, I, I've definitely studied some, uh, Buddhist practices. I've been in the presence of the Dalai Lama about three different times now. Wow. And, and just being in his presence is an extraordinary experience. You can feel, you can feel something that's there. It's that other part of life that you have to say is that's beyond the pure physical five sense part that is there that you can feel connected with. How did you get to spend time with the Dalai Lama three times? One, one time was the Dalai Lama has these conferences for he's had a, he had uh, he, did, he hasn't had them anymore, getting too old for it. But but the his organization Mind Life Institute, which maybe you've heard about, and if you haven't, I would suggest you look it up. Mm-hmm. And 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 the whole idea of that was that the Dalai Lama said, "I'm a Buddhist, and I understand consciousness uh, in a certain way, and I'm very interested in science. In science." doesn't know what consciousness is. They don't know how to even approach it. And he would meet with some of the best scientists in the world over time. And they decided to work together and have conferences. We're saying is the Buddhists can present a certain background and structure for how to look at consciousness and maybe even, uh, and even how to promote science experiments that could be done. And, uh, and the scientists said, good, we, we don't really understand consciousness that well, so let's do it. So one was a con- conference there that was an extraordinary conference. The second one 
was was very very meaningful to me was in Seattle, which is where I live. There was a conference, and I believe it was two thousand eight, Seeds of Compassion, mm-hmm. where the Dalai Lama came to Seattle uh, for about five days, and uh, in order to promote compassion in the world, and there were all sorts of events, and there was a marvelous interchanges that would happen between him and Desmond Tutu were probably one of the best comedian uh, duo that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they were having a grand old time a lot of times in some of their conferences. <laughs> and they had, and he also very specifically had wanted compassion work to be developed in every area of Seattle society. So politically, business-wise, and healthcare. And I was one of the uh, main people for the healthcare part of that. And we had a big meeting with that and had these great ideas of where everything should go. I'm afraid I did not succeed afterwards as well as I would like. But for me, it was a great personal experience. And and there was even supposed to be a follow-up that uh, in one year after the meeting of, uh, of us telling the Dalai Lama what we accomplished. So, I mean, he was, so it was a very meaningful experience, not only just theoretically, but to really think about it in a practical basis. And the third time, uh, third time I went to Dharma Salah. I mean, the closest I've gotten is reading The Art of Happiness. So you definitely, have, <laughs> you definitely have been. Oh, yes. That's, that's pretty good though. <laughs> that's very good. And I recommend anybody listening, like if you are interested in just like all this and what we're talking about, The Art of Happiness is an incredible book that really is like a good entry point, I think, for, for you know, many people. Excellent. I agree with you completely. Yeah. So I have a theory. This is, this is my theory. I, and I mentioned this to you a little bit earlier. So my background and our, our roots and what we do at Risely is we are one of the leading type 1 diabetes health coaching um, companies. And our methodology is very much rooted in evidence-based you know, teachings and practices, but is also in holistic, integrative, um, let's look at the mind and your and your body and all these different elements, you know, not just the quantitative, but the qualitative as, as well. And what we have found is that why people are so successful coming through our coaching programs is because they are committed to really just the essence of slowing down. And slowing down alone just creates so much space for transformation because they're able to see things that they can't even see on a daily basis because they're rushing from being a mom to work to running this errand to cooking dinner and it really is that space. And so in traditional healthcare, I think that one of the reasons why you know, more alternative medicine practices are so easily rejected is because of the time that it takes, or just because of the essence of the, you know, the yin to the yang, the, the feminine, the slowing down, the nurturing, like those elements where healthcare is very much like, let's move at a fast pace. Let's identify the problem. Let's try to solve it. And then, you know, let's move on to the next appointment. So I'm sure there's many reasons why, you know, and there are like, alternative medicine and traditional or Western medicine doesn't mix, but I'm curious, like what your perspective on that is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, it was wonderful what you said. I, I agree with, with it all. There is a quote that I really love to also give another perspective to this. And that is from Einstein, mm. right? And, you know, and Einstein was not only, as we all know, a 
true scientist and one of the top scientists in the uh, 20th century, he also had a real humanistic side to him. And he said, the theory which we, uh, the theory which we believe is what we observe. So that means in alternative medicine, if you don't believe, if you don't believe in energy as being important or human relationship as being ultimately important, but that you believe it's just the interaction on a physical basis, molecular basis uh, of how, of how the body works and everything will be understood by that, including like my area of interest, which is consciousness, uh, that you're, that you're limited. You're only looking at it from one perspective and you could be, and you're missing another whole perspective that has a lot of uh, depth to it and a lot of, a lot of success. But if you can't observe it because, because it it just doesn't fit your, your whole life, life sense of what, what's going on, it's gone. And, and that, and that is a major challenge, which is still present in our society. So let me ask you, what and we're going to come back to this and definitely talk more but let's go back to the point at which you go to medical school and those years learning more of the science and the like was that hard for you going through that or did you really feel going back to like your high school you know story of uh i was reading the science book and i was also reading you know this other book like did you find it hard to go through it and realize like, wow, there, there are so many elements of the body and of the soul and of, you know, these other things that are not included that I want to bring into my practice or really just like, what was that experience for you? And also when did you decide to go into endocrinology? Double question for you. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, 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 the first part of my answer will be a little disappointing. I was, I was still a scientist. I was very much a scientist when I was in, when I was in medical school. I had a lot of arrogance and felt I could learn everything. So I was always learning, increasing knowledge, getting all the facts that was there, which at that time was more possible than it is now, when it's now absolutely impossible to know everything that's going on in the field anymore. AI is going to take over. And when I, yes, and when I went to uh, medical school, my thought was, remember I told Freud, I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist. And so, and so I was interested in a more soft part of science at that part in a way, but in a very scientific way. Mm. But I eventually decided against psychiatry because I was in New York City in a major hospital uh, where uh, there was a clinic for, for psychiatric uh, uh, problems. And there was these Latina uh teenagers that would come in virtually psychotic because their mother would not let them out of their room and they had social deprivation. Uh, and I looked at that and I said, what can medicine do about that? And my feeling was, I can't do anything about that. I need to do go in something else, but I'm very, I was holistic in the sense that endocrinology to me is one of the more uh, holistic ways of looking at medicine. It's not the heart. It's not the kidneys. It's the whole body. And it's very diffuse way. It's involved. The hormones are involved with our emotional self, whatever that is in some ways. And, and so, and so it involves every part of you. And, and that's what drew me to uh, endocrinology. 
That is so fascinating. I I don't know if I've ever looked at it in that sense. I've always looked at the whole body in relationship in relationship to diabetes as your you know your movement and your mindset and your um, insulin sensitivity and your nutrition and relationship to food and relationship to self and more of those aspects. But I but what you just said just hit me in a way that like. I don't, nobody's ever explained it like that, where you're right in any other field, whether it's cardiology or, you know, podiatry, you're working on a very specialized area where hormones are impacting so much of the body. And in the case of diabetes, it's the, you know, it is, it's impacting your energy. It's impacting your mood. It's impacting, you know, just your, your cells and your, you know, so many aspects. So when you started working with patients, you know, in, in the endocrinology field, was there like a specific moment or patient case study along your journey that shifted the way that you viewed how you wanted to treat or show up for your patients or even like double down on your belief that medicine is more than just the treatment of, you know, just let's just change, change some, you know, medicine and insulin and rates and then send you on your way. Gradual process. Mm -hmm. Definitely. There wasn't any one person, but there are a slew of patients that had an impact on me on a very personal level. And this is one of the things that I talk about in the book a little bit is that there is a concern of doctors becoming friends with patients Hmm. because then you theoretically, you lose objectivity. Hmm. You're their friend. So you're going to go, they're there. Everything's okay. What can I do? Bring a hands and maybe have a lot of, maybe too much even empathy uh, for them at that point. So so what's important was for me over time was developing a closer relationship with patients. And I suddenly said, I could be friends with these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they truly were friends. And but there's I, I always felt there was a part of me that was completely objective, scientific, medical, this is the, these are the prescriptions. This is the way to go. And, and, and so I developed more and more a sense of relationship, which quite frankly was very important to avoid burnout, which is, I think one of the big problems that's happening in medicine today is, is that doctors are not given the opportunity even to get close with patients and develop a relationship. Hmm. They always have to be going on to the next patient. And a developing relationship can make a very big difference in it, and it has to me. Here, I can give you a a study, uh, uh, one one patient, uh, there's a slew of them, but this one I always like, was I I started seeing him when he was a teenager, insulin-dependent diabetic, moved from another state, up with his mom, divorced, who knows what type of chaos there was where he was down in this other state but he had been admitted several times for diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm. He comes up and he seems, seems like a nice kid and we're talking about treatment. And I said, so are you checking blood sugars? He said, no. I said, why? I'm not going to do that. Really? And we would go back and forth with that a little bit. He was giving himself shots. And over a period of time, I really understood the reason why he wouldn't, to me, one of the reasons was he was traumatized and he had lost control. What's going on when he was in the hospital? And one of the ways he was able to get control 
and saying, I'm going to refuse to test blood sugars. So he, re, so he, we'd go through this for years, years, 10 years. And I'd always come in and say, you are you testing after about two or three years before I would have a chance to say anything? He would look at me and he would smile and say, nope, but he was working on diet. He was, he, he, he was doing a lot of reasonable things. And for a teenager, maybe more reasonable than some others even. And he was getting by and it wasn't perfect control, but it wasn't bad. Then eventually he gets married and he has a child. He comes in the office and he says to me, yes, I've started. Hmm. So it took 15, 20, 15 years for him to do that. But I felt the idea of having the patience over that time and developing a very close relationship with him but i always but we always knew that was one of the other parts we would like to have done but it was not going to happen maybe you know we weren't going to psychologize it on a couch to figure it out we were just giving it time and then other things happen so sometimes you got to you got to be where the patient is and go from there and use your sense of humanity and understanding with theirs together towards a good a healthcare plan. That's a that's a beautiful story, and I think it really speaks to why a lot of patient doctor relationships are so strained because of the fact that a lot of doctors in that situation that you were in would try to overpower and try to take over, and that even if you think of just especially with at you know young adults, right? You're they're finding their confidence, they're finding their footing. That makes them want to pull back more and not trust. And they don't feel seen and they don't feel heard. So when somebody is dealing with a trauma or, you know, a fear of hypoglycemia or, um, you know, shame, right? Like shame of what that diagnosis means for them, whatever those deeper rooted issues are, when you're looking as a physician at their chart and seeing high numbers, it's not just why are you high and let's change these rates and you know you're going to get these complications, but really looking at like there's clearly a deeper rooted reason why this person's numbers are not, you know, in range. And why don't you ask them like, what do you, what do you need? How can I help you? And my, my theory on this too, and it's not, I don't think it's just my theory. I think it's just generally, and you'll agree with it is that physicians just aren't set up for success because they have 20 minute allotments to meet with their patients. And it's like, if I ask them a follow-up question and then they say, you know, this is the reason, well, it, it stops there where it's, Hey, I got to send you to a therapist or a psychologist or outsource you because I don't have time to really support you through this. So, you know, in your book that I hope everybody, you know, gets a chance to read saving the art of medicine. Do you feel like that's one of the aspects that needs saving and, and how do you go about saving that? Yes. Yes, it is. When, when, how, how, what needs to happen and I, and the only answer that I can come up with, you, you, you can't change institution very quickly. It just won't happen. Mm. Um, and the institution have become even more in, institutionalized. They dig in further and the bean counters are very important in terms of the financial success of, of their healthcare system that they have to make it work. And what becomes important for the patient and the doctor is to understand that they are there together and they need to work together. 
and try to make something good happen out of a system that's nowhere near being perfect and has all sorts of roadblocks in the way. But if the patient could have confidence in the doctor, that the doctor is on their side and can listen to them, that's one of the important parts. And again, we get this whole idea of time again. How much time does it take to listen to someone? Uh, again, my biases if, with, through my meditation work is you can do an awful lot if you can really hone in your sense of intention and attention uh, to accomplish a lot over a short period of time by being very present, as you well know. That's one of the most important things one can do. And, and, and so the end result then is it's the relationship that's going to make, that's going to make the difference and realize that all the treatments that's there is, are important, but ultimately what's going to lead to the most success is a good sense of being together. And, and there's, and there's a book that I don't know if you're familiar with it all by Vivek Murthy, who's the surgeon general. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's a marvelous individual and he wrote a book together, the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world. Mm. Is that, I saw, sorry to go off track now. I feel like when I was looking things up, does your, um, your pu- publicist who works with you to, you know, who has your book or do they also, um, rep that book as well? No, no, no. Okay. Because when I was looking, there was another book on there that I wanted to get and I forget the author's name, but it was essentially like, and I'm going to botch the title, but it was like being, um, it's like surrounded by people, but lonely. We're like constantly, like constantly surrounded by people, but feeling, you know, so alone, like something like that. And so what is the book that you're telling you're speaking about now? Like, what is that? What is the premise of it? Well, it's by the surgeon general. Okay. And there's then there's a lot of and there's a fair amount of science in there of different studies that are done showing how uh, being alone impacts health, hmm. and that has to do with longevity, hypertension, diabetes, all all the chronic diseases just by being alone, and then also flipping the coin of saying when you have people that are really together how they do better. They mention in there the green zones, uh, which is a, uh, seven parts, some places in the world where there are more centenarians than anywhere else, people that have lived a hundred years or more, and they've looked for reasons why. And the, everyone always says, oh, it's, it's diet, and climate. Right. But, but some of them, it appears that what might be very important is the community. Mm-hmm. Vivek, one of the things he mentions is this uh, concept of moai, M-O-A-I, which in Japan is a sense of community that starts from a very early age where everyone protects everybody. And then you come to the U.S., which is a very individualistic society, and we have AI and technology and phones and social media that in a way, I think in a, in a, a not very, how do I say this? Like we think that social media and technology brings us closer together. And I think in some elements it does, but I think there's studies that really do show that your 
you when you're with community in person, right, your dopamine goes up and your your happiness goes up and you feel more fulfilled. But a lot of people are not getting that from technology and social media and robots and all of that. Yes, yes, yes. There's a book that just came out now about happiness from uh, it's a follow up on the study from Harvard that's been going on, I think, for 80 years. Mm. following a group of graduates from Harvard and seeing how they've done through life and and what is the most important things that have led to their sense of happiness. And the number one conclusion is, is community. I mean, that's whether it's that or the blue zones, it all points to that. And I mean, I look at, at Risely, what our signature program is, like our most popular program is our three-month group coaching program for women with type 1 diabetes. And so they have the similarity of, you know, um, the hormones in their body and, you know, being a female that they're in the same patterns and and cycles. um, And they have that, you know, that maybe same similar life stage, whether it's like they're thinking about getting pregnant or they are, you know, postpartum and they or they're, you know, just like other elements, but then they have, of course, the same factor of having type 1 diabetes. And a lot of them come into the program. We each program, we have about 40 to 45 people. And they're like, I, a lot of them are like, I've never talked to another person with type 1 diabetes before. And I, for the first time, feel just so supported and so seen and so just like having a safe space. And that's something where it's like, is that like, is that considered, it's not considered alternative medicine, but I don't think that that's valued in like the endocrinology field, like, is that something that is talked about as beneficial? These days, there's studies on everything, right? Good, bad, and indifferent with it. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's studies that look at that as, as well. In terms of the, how rigorous there are, there's always going to be limitations when you talk about how someone feels, whatever, whatever way you're measuring it, because you have to use particulate Mm. Uh, var- variables that you're looking at to say that you're going to use on a statistical basis to say what's what's important than that. And, and life is probably, probably more than statistics. Mm. I, I would, I would, I would guess so. And I know that you are, you know, a living example of that and I've probably seen that in, you know, so many ways. Absolutely. There's, um, Something that really hit me, I saw a video talking about the third place and I put it in quotations because I don't really know where it originates from or if it was just this creator that posted this video, but it was talking about how when, you know, before technology or before social media, there was very much like you would go to work, you would be home. And those were the two main places you were spending your time. But then that excess time you were spending at that third place, whether it was your you know, grandparents' house or your other family's house, your cousins, or it would be the, you know, the bar down the street or in town with, you know, I, I don't know, your friends in the in the village or whatnot. And saying how what we've lost is that third place. And for us, that third place is that phone and the and and technology and and social media. And I'm just curious, you brought up AI earlier on in the conversation. And I'm wondering like where the direction of AI is going. I know that I've seen, you know, countless videos of how robots are going to be able to have, you know, compassion and be, you know, billion times smarter than more intelligent than than humans and doctors that have so many years of, you know, schooling and experience. But do you see that that humility and open-mindedness and patience and compassion and loving kindness that are integral in your eyes 
to the practice of medicine? Like, do you see those being able to be, you know, protected as AI and medicine grows? Okay. Well, uh, just on a general basis. Did we open up a can of worms at that one? <laughs> no, no, no. It's a beautiful one, actually. It's, it really is. Because uh, a AI is the winner for information. All right. Right now, there maybe is more so-called hallucinations than one would like because it can go in its own direction because it can get so much information. It can actually go in the wrong direction sometimes, but that will keep on improving and it'll become integral in terms of medical practice with AI usage to help and assist the doctor in getting all the information that's potentially there. Humans can't do it anymore. It's way past that. The last, uh, in, uh, but, the, but the one thing that humans have that the uh, AI doesn't is we have a body. And when you look at communication and sense of who we are and even language, and there's a lot written about this, uh, uh, particularly Motorana and uh, Varela, what's called the embodied language, the embodied experience. We are who we are and what we express because of the combination of our body with our mind. It isn't just a mind, uh, an abstract uh, property. There is an truly an important part that's embodied within ourselves. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, uh, I think I know it because I know it. I feel it, right? And I am I am not convinced at all that a machine can do that. <laughs> For instance, when when you just see someone or start talking to someone. You, des you decide if you have a connection with them or not, or you might feel very connected with them. What's that about? Was it something that they said that did that? Was it a twinkle in their eye that did it? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is there? Or is there almost a whole sense of what you're feeling and they're feeling and what, that you can feel connected? And I don't know if that connection uh, can happen with a mechanical device. Right. It's like, have you ever read the book Blink? I, I, I yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Familiar, right? That five, first five seconds, your intuition is what kicks in, right? And, and then you try to convince yourself into, you know, thinking, of, you know, based on facts and based on logic, maybe, you know, think yourself out of that intuitive uh, feeling that you have. But yeah, I, I agree. And I even had, um, I had somebody, you know, I was at a ADA conference. Do you, have you attended the ADA conferences? I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Not, not anymore. I'm, I'm retired from you, that. You, you've, you've put in your, your ADA conference yes. Uh, work. Yes. yes. So I was at one recently and, you know, somebody wanted to get on a follow-up call afterwards and we got on the call and they work for a very big diabetes, um, you know, hospital and, um, uh, or clinic. And they said to me, you know, coaching, they're like, this is, you know, going to be replaced by, by AI, right? Like people, they're going to be able to, you know, AI is going to be able to make plans and it's doing it now, right? I'm going to build you out a nutrition plan and count the macros for you and tell you what to eat and what to do. And I said, but that's not what we do at coaching. And that's not what the power of, you know, what is creating transformation for people. It's the habits and the thoughts and the 
limiting beliefs that people have about themselves that are, you know, driving them to either want to take care of their diabetes and want to take care of it and take ownership and take agency or, or not wanting to do that. So I'm really like, like I have full belief that like that human interaction can't go anywhere. Like I, like to your point, I think AI can supplement it, but to get to the root challenges and issues it always starts with the thoughts that are triggering the beliefs and, and, the, and the feelings and then triggering, you know, the actions of people. So I, I feel like you're, you're in agreement with that. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's an, in, there's an interactive part to it and it's, and I think it gets into the whole area of one could say mind, body, spirit, Mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as a spirit? Is there, which is something beyond the mind, the way we look at it in body? Are there other fi- features that are present in the world, including just a whole general sense of deciding philosophically how are we all connected or not? Are we all just little separate modules going through life and we bump into other people and interact with them? Or are we all part of something? That's bigger, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think those become important as as the way you look at things in terms of how you interact and the meaning that you can have and the meaning you can give to life, which is the other area that's always bothered me a little bit, and it's been talked about by uh, scientific philosophers as well that science has no meaning. Mm. It has its facts. It's information. And then you could say philosophy has meaning, but no facts. You know, I mean, you know, it's more ideas of what's going on. Mm. But when you look at the human existence, and we're getting a little maybe too philosophical here, it's the meaning. No, 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 keep going. Okay. This is the meaning. The meaning of life is ultimately the most important part. Uh, and, 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 and that, and that, can go all the way down to when you're interacting on a healthcare level of saying, uh, of, of feeling that connection to some sort of meaning. Uh, and that can be in all sorts of different ways that you can feel it, but that you have that I think is very important. Just one other little side note here is, is when you look at the whole idea of the mind in particular, what about the placebo? What, where does that fit into all this? What does science think about the placebo? Right. It's like, damn it. How do I get rid of this placebo effect? Right. Right. They don't want it to be true. They don't want that control group to be. (laughs) They're saying it can't be that important. We've got to get rid of it in order to find what we're looking for. And what I advocate is the opposite. How can we increase the placebo effect? Mm. And uh, and actually in the book. Uh, I came up. I I just I, uh, I wrote that we have to get rid of the get rid of the word placebo because because it has way too negative a connotation. People have associated with placebo is oh you're giving me nothing, hmm. and so what do you get out of that then? You could get nothing out of it, even though there have been placebo studies that have been done where they've been told we're giving you a placebo, but try this. And they've gotten a positive response from it. Mm. So, so there's all sorts of things going on with the mind. But I think we should change the word placebo to an acronym I came up with, which was TIP, T-I-P, 
therapeutic interventional potential. Hmm. Is that something that's integrated beyond just the book? Like, has that been adopted in? in oh no, no! It was it yet? was an idle it was an idle thought. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You know, you know, you know but, I, but I want to promote it as as another way of trying to look at medical treatment and the use of placebos, and that's been looked at too. The there's been fascinating work with placebos and how and how they've been able to help people or get them off medications that they're on uh, or decrease doses tremendously by the use of, of placebos. Uh, and, and so there's that whole other part of that interaction of your mind and body and realize how important the mind is for what, what's going on with the body. Uh, or as I like to say is, you know, we talk about science and a lot of what we talk about in science in five years, it's going to change. So you can get bummed out with that and say, you know, it's only good for right now. But our sense of community, communion and relationship can only get stronger and be more eternal. And what I'm hearing you say, too, is it's not just the relationship with others, but it's the relationship with yourself and that being the most important and first in your mind. If you get diagnosed with something and you're telling yourself this is horrible and I lost so much in my life and my life can never be as good as it was and I'm you know never going to feel healthy or happy again like that is what you are going to call into your life and and to manifest and your life is going to be a reflection of that different from somebody else who gets diagnosed who says you know what this is a challenge that I have but a challenge that I can rise above and I'm gonna do everything I can in my power to feel good and feel gratitude every day Absolutely. Uh, one of the, what would happen with a lot of patients that I would see where, they come, where the parents would be coming in with their teenager, just, di- just diagnosed with, diagnose, uh, with diabetes, sometimes almost within that week or a couple of days, and they would be coming in. And of course, there was a lot of anxiety and there was this pall of dread that was there that uh, that my child's life is now going to be impacted in a negative way for the rest of their life, and I had to work. I had to see where the where the family was or what I can talk about. But one of the things I would try to tell them was, you know, he she has diabetes, uh, and actually it could be a blessing hmm. because now you know that you need to take care of yourself more. You have to eat. Diet's important. Exercise important. You're looking at more healthy uh, ways of being healthy. And it very well can be that you are going to be more healthy than Joe down the street who who has no medical problems, but is eating uh, fast food all the time and just not even thinking about his health. So this could be a blessing. Absolutely. And it's, and it's a choice to view, to view it that way. It, it really, you know, it really is. So on, on that note, I would love to end by asking you one final question. You have lived 75 years and 50 of them were spent, about 50 of them were spent caring for, you know, the health of others. So right. if you were to choose like the top three habits that you think contribute to living a healthy, long life, what would, what would those be? For me, meditation was very important, but it gets into what you were saying before about, uh, about, about people having something else in their life that was very important to them. Uh, 
something that gets them away from their normal grind. Uh, and, uh, and meditation to me was very important and very grounding for me. And in this fast paced world, we have to, we have to find ways of slowing down diet. I have one word, moderation. If you do in moderation, that can take care of a lot of, of concerns about diet. And when anyone tells you about the perfect diet, go the other way. Just, just realize you have to use, well, you could say common sense, but it's moderation. Too much of anything, even good things, is not, is not good. Mm-hmm. And then, well, one could say being active, exercise, particularly in this, in this world where, where, where we have too much to do and not enough time to spend with our own bodies and trying to keep ourselves physically fit, but trying to do something that's exercise-wise every every day uh whether it's this particular personal trainer type habit or is it just sort of a regular walking habit if you can do with walking the important thing is to me what's very important is how to connect to nature that's beautiful that's there's it's it really just like the simplicity of nature is just brings you back to really i think what's important I love that. Dr. Sussman, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I know the listeners, our listeners will enjoy it, um, have enjoyed it as well. And I just thank you for all of your life's work and for writing a book and for sharing it because that's really important and that's a legacy that is going to live on. Um, And I will be sure to read the book and to share it with anybody that I feel would also be receptive to your message. Good. And I'm more than happy to talk to anyone that reads the book that has any questions or ideas or wanting to start a meditation group. I'm more than happy to help them. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Right. And thank you, Lauren. It's been great. Thank you so much for being here with me today and listening to this episode of Reclaim Your Rise. To let us know that the episodes we're putting out are impactful and to help us get our street cred up and let everyone else know that this is something worthy of their time to listen to, please leave a rating and review on our Apple podcast, send the show to other people impacted by T1D or maybe even your doctor, and share it on social media tagging at Risely Health and at Lauren underscore Bongiorno. New episodes of Reclaim Your Rise come out every single Tuesday, so make sure you are subscribed to the podcast so that you never miss a beat. Thanks again for listening, and as always, remember, diabetes is a challenge that we did not choose, but one that we can rise above.